Hello, everybody. I'm Jenna Hayes. I'm, here. I'm yeah. Amira David. We're back. Yeah, we're back. And just thank you for being here with us on the School of Life podcast. Um, those of you who were with us last couple episodes, we were um, essentially just introducing the purpose and the why behind um, doing this podcast. And for those of you that are new to the podcast, we really are just wanting to pursue and touch on the sort of prevailing ideas of our day and assess them from a variety of perspectives. Um, we just think that ideas matter and we, uh, we live in a culture of a whole bunch of ideas and we live by them and through them. And so we think they're worthy of some introspection. And so we come to this table with our own, you know, our own worldviews and our own perspectives, but we're just excited to dive into all sorts of different material. That being said, the last episode that we recorded, um, we just really just gave our introduction, but today we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into the concept of truth, both, both as a discipline, um, as a pursuit, an academic pursuit, but also giving weight to its history as a pursuit. Um, truth has been one of the most highly sought after conversations and ideas through all of our known human history. It's always mattered to people. And so we just want to pick up in, uh, in that conversation thread and give it our best and our own, um, our own perspective on that. So yeah. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> this is where we nerd out. So join us in our nerd out, nerd out sesh. Yeah. Um, so we were thinking we just want to go to the basics. And while this might seem um, rudimentary, I think it's actually really helpful to go right back down to the very foundation of a conversation and then build back up from there to see where, where we're coming from. Um, so I actually went just to the... <laughs> straight up Merriam-Webster's dictionary and looked up the definition of truth, which I've actually never done before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and here's what the definition is. And I'm just going to read it to you. One, the body of real things, events, and facts, actuality. Two, the state of being the case, which is also known as fact. Um, three, a transcendent, fundamental, or spiritual reality. Um, a judgment, proposition, or an idea that is true or accepted as true. Um, and then we have the body of true statements and propositions. And then number two, we have a property of a statement of being in accord with fact or reality. So lining up with reality. Um, and then I love this one, fidelity to an original or to a standard, which I think is really yeah. important. And we're going to come okay. back around to that. And then another part of the definition here is a sincerity in action, character, and utterance. So I think that's actually pointing to morality, that there's truth in the realm of morality. Um, fidelity, constancy, and get this, the last definition is God. Mm -hmm. um, which I was surprised to see there. <laughs> um, so when we're talking about the idea of truth, um, and when we ask uh, if an idea is true, I think what we typically mean is, does it fit with the world as we actually experience it and know it, which I think is really important, um, and does it match up with the facts as previously defined? Um, Given that, we have a standard for facts, which seems to be getting harder these yeah. days yeah. in the realm of media and internet and quote-unquote fake news and AI. Yeah. Um, the, the, the concept of fact, I think, is getting a little more muddled. Um, so where do we get truth? Where do we look for truth in our world? Um, and it depends, I would say, on how old we are. It yeah. depends on the era, the time that we live in, obviously. We, you know, remember good old encyclopedias? <laughs> um, I miss those days. <laughs> like books. books. Actual books. Paper and... Yeah. Right. Um, so there's several places we find truth or we try to find truth. Um, one realm would be to look to authorities. You know, this is originally our parents. Um, 
And as we get older, we realize, oh, our parents are really flawed and maybe they don't know everything Mm -hmm. as we once thought that they did. And then there's school, which is a huge um, formation factor. Remember last time we were talking about the formation factors in our world, what creates who we are. Um, So school. And there's a lot of historical and ideological underpinnings to how school is formed. Um, I know, you know, I don't know how much we've talked about this before, about how school was created in an era when... Um, we were creating factory workers and we needed people to be able to get in lines and abide by bells and sit down all day and, you know, abide by what authorities were telling them and conform. Um, And that actually the fundamental structure of education has not changed since then. So there's these um, sort of structural ways that we learn truth um, just in the 13,000 hours we spend in school every year. Um, and then higher education universities is actually, um, a truth making machine at this point. Um, and we're going to talk more about that eventually for sure. So that's authorities. We look for truth in authorities and that is hoping that the authority we're looking to actually knows the truth. Um, and that's a really huge assumption in and of itself. Um, we also find truth through our senses, right? Our sensory experience of the world, what we see, touch, taste, smell, experience. Um, and while that's a really important way to learn truth, it's definitely flawed in its own self because it only takes into account the material and what can be experienced and assumes that there's nothing else beyond that. Or if you're looking through that lens only, right? Um, and then there's the mind, the way we perceive the world. And um, I actually have recently read a study that taught, and I have to find the, the quotation for this, but um, where they're finding that the way we perceive reality actually has the ability to change our actual genes, to turn things on and off. Um, and so our perceptions are very powerful in terms of um, what actually manifests in our life, Etc. So our mind is very powerful. The way we perceive the world is very powerful, but also not always a great litmus test for truth because it can be changed, right? It's not, um, doesn't have a, a necessary fixed. standard. It's mm-hmm. not fixed, right? And then we have science, which I would say in this day and age is sort of the pervasive vehicle through which we find truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by that, I mean what can be measured, yeah. what can be tested using the tools that we have. Um, And that, again, if we're only using that as a vehicle to find truth, um, we're assuming a certain worldview there as well. We're assuming that the material is all that there is or all that can be known about the world. Um, And then a huge one is the Internet, right? I mean, now, this day and age, where do we go when we want to know anything? We hop on Google and we type in a question and up comes all these pages or we go to Facebook or we go to Instagram for our news, for our information, for the articles that are shared there. Um, It's, you know, an information, quote unquote, fact producing machine. Right. Um, And typically, I, I know that I used to think that the Internet was really neutral. Um, It is not, as it turns out. Um, So I'm going to come back to this internet issue in a moment, but the last thing I want to say in terms of our, where we find truth um, or where we look to for truth is something that we're going to be calling general revelation. And all this means is that um, it's what we know. It's what we experience, no matter how we make sense of it, no matter how we explain it. It's what we all experience on a daily basis as true to being human. Um, one thing that we'll come back to in this category of general revelation is free will, yeah. right? We all have this perception of being able to make decisions, make choices, um, whether or not, you know, our ideology actually supports that is a different story, right? But that's a, a, an example of general revelation. Um, Nancy Piercy says, it's anything that we are compelled to affirm simply in order to function in the world as it is, this is part of general revelation, what we're compelled to affirm simply in order to function in the world. So remember that because we're going to come back to that a lot. So I want to circle back to this internet question um, because uh, I want to give it due attention because this um, this is really what dictates our truth these days, I would say. Um, so I went down, I was telling Jenna, I was like, I went down some serious rabbit holes here. Um, things I never knew before. So I'm just going to share a few of them. 
Um, I found this book called Digital Liturgies by Samuel James, which is really cool. And actually Timothy Keller in his review of this book said, um, this accessible but penetrating book shows how our late modern secular culture provides liturgies, as in soul-shaping practices and narratives that train us um, to turn to the sovereign, the sovereign self. Um, and he goes on to say, you know, from God-created nature to self-created reality. Um, so anyway, it's talking about how liturgies are things that shape who we are and our narratives about the world and how in this day and age, that's digital um, content. So I was looking at this, um, this concept of like self-revelatory nature of the internet and how we all um, are trying to control our identity in a way um, without being truly known, right? We, this is called image crafting. You know, the things that we see on Instagram are just things that people craft about themselves um, to shape how they're seen in the world. Um, and there was this concept that Samuel James was talking about called restaging reality. And he was talking about how before the internet, we still had TV, we had sitcoms and shows um, that restaged reality, reality, in other words, showing how life should be or could be. And the more we engaged in this media, the more we sort of subconsciously started to think of life as being like should be that way. You know, we should be always happy. We should always be joking with our friends. If not, then something's wrong. You know, this um, our house should look this way or, you know, whatever. And that now social media is doing that very same thing. And the internet itself is restaging reality. If you just look at like, quote unquote, cancel culture, um, part of that comes from this way our brain is being formed to think that we should be able to click out of that page or delete that account or stop that subscription or turn off that voice or, um, you know, this way in which we interact with the internet becomes more or less how we feel like we should be able to react with humans, with reality. Um, that's just an example of this restaging vehicle of the internet. Um, and then I went down a bit of a deeper rabbit hole. I don't know if anyone has heard of this thing called the Whole Earth Catalog. Um, this was published in 1968. So this was before the internet um, by someone named Stuart Brand, who is, that's a name I had never heard. But it, as I went down this rabbit hole, I realized that he's sort of the father of the technological age. And people like Steve Jobs see him as their hero. Um, and in this Whole Earth Catalog, well, he was, he's known as the first person to understand something like cyberspace. He was the one who coined the term personal computer, um, and he influenced an entire generation, including uh, an entire generation of technologists. Steve Jobs referenced him in his Stanford graduate address, um, and he said the whole earth catalog was a sort of Google in paperback form 35 years before Google came along. It was idealistic and overflowing with neat tools and notions, um, in the in the last issue of the Whole Earth Catalog, um, Brand said, "Stay hungry, stay foolish," um, which is an interesting notion. Um, but on the the title page of this Whole Earth Catalog, Brand says, "We are as gods and might as well get good at it." Um, up until now, he had noted power had been in the hands of government, big business, formal education, church. But now, he says, a realm of intimate personal power is developing. Power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Tools to aid this process are sought and promoted in this thing called the Whole Earth Catalog. So this sounds really good, right? It sounds really attractive. Like, yes, let's take the power back from the powers that be, right? Um, we all want this kind of freedom or what is perceived as freedom. Um, but is it really freedom? Um, just like our children need boundaries and parameters in order to stay safe and to actually feel free in a safe way. Um, I believe we also need some form of boundaries yeah. around reality in order to have actual freedom and around morality as well, which we'll get into. Yeah. So, um, Brand had this like chain of influence, right? He he inspired Steve Jobs, who created Apple, right? Um, and uh, as I went deeper into this, I found that in this beginnings of the Whole Earth Catalog came this 
ideology that now can be termed as transhumanism, which is defined as a class of philosophies that seek to guide us towards a post-human condition, which means um, it's the idea that we should be able to overcome our humanness, which I think is also very rooted in like evolutionary theory. In other words, like maybe this is the next step in our evolution or it can be framed that way. So this is very, has very clear ideological underpinnings um, where people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg are very much so interested in this transhumanist ideology where we can move towards no longer having to be just human. And um, we can try to overcome our brain's abilities, our physical abilities, and become, you know, like use computers to evolve. Did you want to say anything about that? No, that's okay. great. Yeah, disagree. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is just that um, without our really noticing, um, and I've had this verified by people in the tech industry, um, you know, web design used to be constructed for search engine optimization only. But now with algorithms and AI, um, it's actually construct constructed to drive our attention um, to certain places for as long as possible implying that the powers that be on the internet can decide what's best for us in spite of ourselves um, while remaining unseen and, and undetected really. And so what we see as this free open source place really isn't that free and really isn't um, yeah. that neutral at yeah, all, actually. Totally. So I know that was a long rabbit hole, but I just felt like that was really important in this conversation about truth and looking at where it comes from. Yeah. Um, so, I have a really long next piece about the history of truth in philosophy. Um, and I think it's an important piece, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go too deep into it because, I, I mean, we could be here for the next eight weeks um, <laughs> having an entire course in the philosophy of yeah. truth. Yeah. Um, do you want to say something just about how, why this ph philosophical thing is important? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I mean... A lot of us understand sort of just this basic that, and even if we don't understand it really explicitly, I think we all know this intuitively, that the philosophy or our worldview undergirds everything that we do, whether we examine that really in full or not. And so it's the philosophy and what we think about truth or what we believe is true actually has a direct bearing on almost everything that we do in our lives. The, it's the lens through which we view all else. It also determines our behavior, meaning what we do and what we don't do. And so this has been the course of study for, and the pursuit for ancients since, since the, I mean, since the earliest that we're aware of, this has been a pursuit. And it's for this reason that everyone who has really drenched themselves in a really proper study of philosophy understands the merit and the value of truth, both as a discipline, but also it's bearing on all of reality and our understanding of reality. But more importantly, it comes from this notion that in order to flourish as human beings, that we want or that we should be in alignment with truth so that what we do and what we don't do corresponds with truth, because the idea is like if you're living outside of what corresponds with truth, then you'd be living, behaving, thinking in error. And I think most of us know we don't want lives lived in error that would cause, you know, implication or consequence um, for us in a variety of ways. So, anyway, the pursuit, the challenge of truth is really important. It's always been understood that way um, as having a direct bearing on basically every detail of our lives, whether we, whether we really understand or sense that intuitively on a daily basis or not, but that it does, mm -hmm. whether, we, whether we want it to or not. Yeah. yeah. And so I think this is important. And later we'll talk about kind of more where we're at now yeah. as a society, which yeah. I might characterize as even like a post-truth society yeah. and what the implications of that really are. Mm -hmm in our, in our opinion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to do a little flyover and I have pages of information that I'm going to sift through right now, um, to look at some of this history of the philosophy of truth. So a lot of this is from the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy. I tried to find really reputable sources for this. And from that article, um, it starts as saying these theories all attempt to directly answer the nature question, which is what is the nature of truth? Like what is truth, right? 
a lot of us kind of take for granted that we know what truth is, but it's actually, we can't take that for granted. Um, They take this question at face value, that there are truths and the question to be answered concerns their nature, right? Um, So explaining the nature of truth becomes an application of, it says some metaphysical system, in other words, a worldview system, Mm Um, and truth's inherent significant metaphysical presuppositions along the way. So there's a lot of, depending on where you're coming from, there's assumptions that are ingrained there about what truth actually is. So I'm going to start with just a little bit of the like ancient Greek philosophers. Um, I'm sure you've all heard of Aristotle, right? So he defined truth um, for classical philosophy in large. And it's, he says, to say of what is that it is, and of what is not, that it is not, is true. So what is, it is, what is not, it is not, that that is truth. Um, so he says there's these assumptions which prove decisive for the career of truth in philosophy. First assumption is the priority, and so I'm going to get kind of wordy here, so I'm going to go slow and turn your, your brain on for a moment if you've kind of zoned out. So first, the priority of nature over language culture, or the effects of historical experience. So in other words, um, another way to say this is that classical truth subordinates um, the being, the existence and identity of signs, uh, linguistic or otherwise, to the natural, physical, finally given presence of the non-signs they stand for. So all that's basically saying is um, that, that truth exists and that it is there regardless of our language or our culture um, or our historical experience, okay? I hope that wasn't too confusing. So then um, doctrines of being, so this idea of what is, what is being in spite of our language about it or how we understand it, right? Um, In Greece, arose in Greece in connection with the question, what must reality be like for knowledge and informative discourse to be possible. Mm. So they're saying, this is saying there has to be a capital T truth for knowledge and learning to actually be possible in the first place. Um, So here it says truth in Greek is the virtue of a discourse that subordinates itself to what is. So we can talk about it all we want, but the talking is always um, has to be subordinated to what actually is. And so we're always looking for what is actual, what actuality is, right? Um, and this word in Greek, aletheia, I think is how you say it, denotes truth in contrast to mere appearance. So something may seem a certain way and it may not be that certain way. So again, we're getting down to this like nitty gritty basics of what truth is. Um, in Homer, which is, you know, classic literature, this word um, is most frequently used in contrast to the telling of a lie or to the withholding of information. So now we're mm-hmm. looking at truth in contrast to lying. Um, so then there's another Greek philosopher named Parmenides and from 450 BC. And he's looking at um, what the nature of real being Uh, is and draws a contrast between the way of truth and the way of seeming. So this is a little more in this vein. Um, He says there can be no change in what really exists. So now we're looking at how truth is constant. It does not change. It's fixed. Yeah, It's fixed. So hence truth, in contrast to appearance, belongs to the extra historical realm of the changeless. The changeless. It does not change. So I think that's important to point out as one idea of truth, because in this culture today, truth is always changing. Mm-hmm. And does that mean that it can be true? Yeah. Do you want to say something about that? Or just that we we believe that truth yeah. is changing, right. that it's relative, but it doesn't mean that that, that just because we think that, that it is truth, that it right. is changing. Yeah. Yeah. So then we come to the sophists, another group of ancient Greek philosophers, um, in particular Protagoras. I'm sure we've all heard of Protagoras. Um, he refused the view um, to view the material world as mere illusion. His famous dictum said that man is the measure of all things. So here we are coming into a philosophy that's talking about, um, it comes near the, the modern notion of existential truth, or in other words, relativism. Um, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. We create our own reality that man or our mind is actually the measure of all things. So that's another way to look at truth. 
Um, then we come to Plato, he who actually rejects that view. Um, he replied that if true and false are merely relative to the individual thinker, then as soon as someone says the philosophy of Protagoras is false, for him, it is therefore false. So now we come into this battle of who whose truth is the real truth. Yeah. Um, falsehood, I love this. Falsehood for Plato is a matter of deception. Oh, it conceals reality. False words, he believed, are merely a copy of deception in the soul. Whoa. Isn't that amazing? Go Plato. Whoa. Counterfeit. Amazing. Right? Wow. Here's like the first yeah. notion of counterfeit, counterfeit. truth. Right? Wow. Yeah. Um, and then he went so far as to say, by contrast, the divine, he used the word divine, the divine and the divinity are free from falsehood. Okay. And he says, God is true in deed and word. But I don't think Plato went as far as to actually identify like a biblical God as God. Um, and actually down here, I found a quote from Francis, Francis Schaeffer's book, um, which is called, he is there and he is not silent. And he spoke to Plato. And what he said was, um, here's the complete answer to Plato's dilemma. He spent his time trying to find a place to root his absolutes. So Plato knew there had to be absolutes. So he spent his time trying to find a place to root his absolutes, but he was never able to do so because his gods were not enough. Um, so Plato is trying to find the divine outside of the divine, basically. Um, but here is the infinite personal God who has a character from which all evil is excluded. And so his character is the moral absolute of the universe. Wow. Isn't wow. That beautiful? That's amazing. I know. Yeah. But, um, but Plato was, he was getting close. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Totally. The pursuit is dead on. Dead awesome. on. Yeah. Right. And that's when I was going through all these theories, I was going, these are all partially true. Yeah. Like all truth. these people yeah. are looking at, you know, the, the proverb of the elephant, the blind people touching the elephant, you know, one person touch, touches the trunk and says the elephant's like a snake and then touches the legs and says, it's like a tree. Oh, so good. And the answer yeah. is like, yes, 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 yes. So yes, good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So then we come into the neoclassical theories. Um, and here, Jenna, I wonder if you can speak to the theory of non-contradiction. Can yeah. you speak to that for a second? Yeah. So it's just this idea that if something is true, it will be true all the time, despite feelings or despite anything that's projected onto it. So for example, it would be an inconsistent contradiction um, for us to say something to the extent of, it's absolutely true that there are no moral absolutes or that there's no absolute truth. But even in saying that, it's a contradiction because you're saying absolutely there are no like objective truths or absolute truths. So the idea is that for something to be true, it cannot contradict itself. And so the law of non-contradiction just says exactly that, that in, for it to be true, it cannot essentially um, be self-referential or contradict its own logic. Its own logic has to stand up to its truth claims. Yes. Yeah. Which Jenna will dive into <laughs> in a moment. <Yeah. laughs> Hold tight. So there's all these neoclassical theories that build on Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these early philosophers. One's um, the theory of non-contradiction and one's the correspondence theory, which basically just says that um, the world exists objectively and independently of the ways we think about it or describe it. Yeah. Right? Like our feelings or our opinions have no bearing on whether so something that is objectively true capital t true yeah, yeah exactly and then there's something called the coherence theory which says that truth in its essential nature is that systematic coherence which is the character of a significant whole in other words um if there is nothing to truth beyond what is to be found in an appropriate system of beliefs then it would seem one's beliefs constitute the world in a way that amounts to idealism um, another way you can think of this is that, you know, for a worldview to be true, it has to be coherent and explain all of life mm -hmm. as it actually is. Yeah. So if something that we experience and know to be true doesn't fit or isn't coherent, then maybe it, it doesn't work. Maybe mm -hmm. it's not actually all the way true. Yeah. Um, so then we come into the pragmatist theories. These are more or less coined by Charles Pierce in the late 1800s and James William or William James. They're associated with the slogan that truth is satisfactory to believe. So we're going like pragmatism. It's just like, yeah, they say that truth is the end of inquiry, which I thought was interesting. Um, and let's see. Uh, 
truth, true beliefs are guaranteed not to conflict with subsequent experience. And Pierce's slogan tells us that true beliefs will remain settled at the end of prolonged inquiry. Mm. So it's like, no matter mm. how many questions you ask, no matter how long you investigate something, truth will stand up. It yeah. will remain yeah. grounded at the end of all of that. Yeah. Right. Nice. Um, so again, it's like, yes, these are all yes to yeah. all these different facets. Right. Um, so then we have something called anti-realism, which basically says it holds that a claim is correct just insofar as it is in principle verifiable. Mm. So here we are in more of the world of scientism, what, what's testable. Mm-hmm. Um, truth is not in this view a fully objective matter at all, actually. Mm-hmm. It says it's independent of us and our, of our thoughts, um, as it, it, saying that it's not independent of our thoughts. Uh-huh. Instead, truth is constrained by our ability to verify. Uh-huh. So testability of yeah. the claim. Right. So that's called anti-realism. Mm-hmm. And then just two last ones here. One's pluralism. Um, such a proposition might su- suggest that there are multiple concepts of truth or that the term true is itself ambiguous. Um, and then the last one here is called deflationism. Um, it's a longstanding trend in the discussion of truth, um, which insists that true truth really does not carry metaphysical significance at all, actually. Mm. <laughs> um, and that's sort of where we are, I would yeah. say, more or less now. Yeah, totally. Um, so there's this way in which we actually need truth to function. And so, Jenna, can you talk a little bit about the areas in our life where truth is necessary, actually, yeah. for us to be able to function in society? Yeah, yeah, totally. So as holistic beings, right, so we are social creatures, Uh, We need relationships, we need community, we're part of families, and we have friendships. And also, we interface with the public square, so with our, in layers of academia and in our careers. And so in all of those spheres, we have a relationship with those spheres. And what we believe, actually, you know, like I kind of mentioned earlier, has a direct bearing on how we relate and interface with every one of those things. So as a culture, I think I want to go up a little higher, a little more 30,000 foot. So those of us in the West, we are really, we have been, our, our roots have been nurtured um, in a culture that was born largely out of the Judeo-Christian womb. And yet there has been this deconstruction period, if you will, um, where many of us in culture, um, I'm not I mean, I wouldn't speak this over myself, but largely is that many of us stand at the edges, you know, of our religious heritage and have become hypercritical of that. And so in doing so, and I'm not saying the criticism is bad. I actually think that's what Amir and I are doing here. And hopefully it's understood as a healthy way is that um, to critique the ideas of the past and the present is really important um, in the pursuit of truth. And so part of that has landed us now in a cultural moment where I don't think it can be said that the prevailing worldview is that of a Judeo-Christian worldview. I think a lot of people would still maybe claim to be Christians in a, in a cultural Christianity sort of way, but the, the, really the prevailing most dominant worldview of our day um, is that of uh, naturalism, which is which really is to define that it's Darwinian evolution. And so while that feels like a scientific realm that I'm talking about, um, we actually rely on that in order to function in, in the realm of truth in our culture. So let me say that maybe a little bit more clearly. What we have to, people, humans are, we have to have a narrative to live by. We have to actually have some sort of concept of truth in order to function well. And so what has happened over time is that Darwinian evolution, while it started as just an explanatory claim about the origin of species, it has, however, um, developed into an entire worldview that is that has, yes, scientific roots, but now it actually speaks into every single sphere that we interface with, all the ones that I listed. So any culture anywhere in the world is driven by a kind of logic, and that's testable in all sorts of um, sociological ways. But it will eventually, whatever the, the, the culture's logic is, that logic will eventually begin to express its consequences in the dominant worldview. So just meaning that it's the worldview will have implications 
all over the place, right? And so the logic of evolution, of Darwinian evolution, um, ends up requiring a consistency to be applied across the board where, where Darwinian evolution began in science, what people inevitably find and even what those scientists began to find and what philosophers have begun to find and sociologists have begun to find is that whatever the dominant worldview is, it has to have explanatory power across the board, meaning it has to deal in the realm of religion. It has to deal in the realm of morality and it has to deal with politics and academia and then everything else. So what if you if you follow the thread on that, what it actually means is that everything about our worldview actually hangs on our view of origins. So just like evolution, the Darwinian evolution theory starts as an explanation of origins if it's a proper worldview and if it is true. So remember, like any worldview is a truth claim. So that's what, you know, Amira has been getting at is it's all a truth claim. Yeah, go ahead. And I just want to uh, throw in here, Nancy Piercy says when she's looking at this, um, when she's looking at truth, she says humans have a tendency to look to some power or principle or person to make sense of life and give mm -hmm. it meaning. Yeah. And that constitu constitutes their de facto religion, whether they use theological language or not. Yeah. Um, and she says, as a matter of sheer logic, any explanation of life must have a starting point. It must trace the universe back to something that functions as the primal reality, mm -hmm. which is what Jenna's talking about. So the self-existent yeah. cause of everything else. Um, she mentions that, as Paul says in Romans, if you reject the biblical God, you will deify something within the created order. Um, but we're going to test that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's so good. So... Uh, if we're saying that humans rely on truth in order to function, and we're saying that there's all sorts of ways that we, in, in areas, spheres of our lives, that we re rely on truth in order to function, and if we're claiming that Darwinian evolution, which I think anyone in academia would agree with that, is that, or in academia meaning uh, specialists, professionals right now in terms of the formation machines of our culture would agree that Darwinian evolution is the driving um, it's the locomotive. It's the, it's what's pushing everything else. And so to sort of define Darwinian evolution, there's a lot there, but really it's that we are humans are nothing more than machines that have formed as a result, um, of time and chance and have developed naturally, naturally selected over time have developed, and but we that everything that we do in terms of behavior, the way that we think, um, and the way that we relate to all else, that we we are not capable of doing anything beyond what is useful. Meaning that we only make decisions in order to create and propagate the the survival of the species, right? Mm -hmm. And so that means, in implication, that there is no way really to say in an objective sense, according to Darwinian evolution, that we have purpose or that there's meaning. Um, really, the summary is that we are genetic, genetically um, selected robots and that every decision we make is a result of our genes. And another term for that is determinism. Yeah, determinism. So exactly. meaning like we are sort of sacks of chemicals that are predetermined. Our thought processes are yeah. determined for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, and oh, go ahead. I want to yeah. just throw in here really quickly. Yeah. I think this is maybe where this fits. Um, is this idea of something called reductionism. So what this means is um, if reductionism is like, it's like trying to see the world through a single lens. Um, if reductionism is like trying to stuff the entire universe into a box, right? That primal reality, that that um, self-existent cause, that one lens you're looking through to, to see reality, we could say that inevitably something will stick out of that box, um, a box that deifies a part of the creation. So in this case, it deifies um, material, yeah, right? Yeah. The, mm -hmm. the, the self-existent thing is just matter. Mm -hmm. um, then a, if it deifies a part of creation, so that's the part that you know evolution would deify, um, it will always be too limited to explain the whole, including what we refer to as general revelation. Whatever does not fit in the box will be denigrated, devalued, or dismissed as mm -hmm. just unreal. Mm 
Um, Or it will be something called like, oh, religion is wishful thinking or the opiate of the masses or love or mind or consciousness is just chemical processes we have no control over, but maybe a necessary fiction. Um, G.K. Chesterton, 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 I can never say his last name, called Mm. reductionism a mental prison, a prison of one thought. Whatever does not fit in that prison is denied or suppressed. Yeah. Um, So I have a lot more examples of um, what sticks out of the box, but one really obvious one in this worldview of determinism, materialism, evolutionary theory is uh, free will. Yeah. But I'll get into that in a little while. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So so where Darwinism, the Darwinian evolution, has to then begin applying itself as a worldview to all the other social spheres we would just call social Darwinism. Um, and then, and so basically that is the idea that we've harnessed the survival of the fittest mentality um, where it ends up being sort of this like ruthless pursuit of self-interest, but that's just under the banner of social biology. So that aligns with social Darwinism that everyone is just making decisions in society, relating to other people, making decisions um, in order to, keep the, um, to keep the species alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So then what that means, if we're talking about now the social implications of evolution, we then have to talk about the behavior side of that. And that is what I really want to get into today. So what used to be called sociobiology is now being referred to as evolutionary psychology. And this is exactly a derivative of Darwinian evolution as a scientific theory of origins. Okay, so what this means is that if we're talking about evolutionary psychology, it's our inheritance as evolved animals is beyond just our anatomy and our DNA. It's about our behavior too. So um, it's impossible though to you know sort of limit the implications of Darwinian evolution because you cannot say once you make a truth claim, which is what Darwin did about the origin of species, then it has to apply across the board like we've been sort of talking about. But you can't say then, you know, uh, for example, the area of politics or the area of morality um, is immune to the implications of evolution. And so why that matters is because it certainly is my, my personal opinion, but regardless of my opinion, I'm going to be sort of describing the way that that ends up producing this sort of dissonance between what we claim from academia down, from, from um, all areas of expertise down in our culture, we claim this as a worldview. And this is certainly what's espoused in higher education all the way down through K through 12, um, which is the formation machine of, of our culture. And that's what we claim. And yet it's proving to be difficult to live actually, to behave and relate within that framework. And this so points to the yeah. theory of co- coherence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Is that if a worldview is true, it should also be in terms of its testability, it should correspond with how we actually experience both ourselves and others and our human nature. So once you accept the Darwinian premise, as most in our culture do, I think, especially in terms of um, the most form- formative spheres right now. It's largely unquestioned at this point. Yeah, it is largely unquestioned. And that, well, it's, I was going to say more on more on the evidence for all that later, but largely unquestioned. There is then logical pressure to be consistent. So that means applying this framework, this worldview across every aspect of culture. And that includes what we perceive as what is true and what we perceive as right and wrong. So we're talking about ethics and we're talking about a moral code. So I I opened by saying, you know, we have sort of this root system that is a Judeo-Christian worldview, and that is because it's an all-encompassing worldview. It has a moral explanatory explanatory power, which means it defines what's good and evil, as does Darwinian evolution. Um, So moving on here, evolutionary psychology is really you know, it, it relies on the presupposition that there is no such thing as God. So we are sort of rejecting the roots of the Judeo-Christian worldview that assumes that there is a creator God. And in doing so, evolutionary biology is really an attempt to use nature to justify a secular worldview, which is fine, but it just like any other worldview then requires a good amount of critique. So for many, it's a promise to provide a morality based on the solid ground of science instead of 
the myths of religion, you know, of, of our ancient past here. <laughs> um, anyway, but how, how does this work? So evolutionary biology is sort of a two-part process. It first begins by debunking traditional morality, by reducing it to genetic self-interest. And then it offers to construct a new morality with all the authority of science. So remember, we're talking about behavior as opposed to origin of the species. This is how it trickles down. So if we believe that we are a product of time and chance and that the species has just been naturally selected over time and that we are then um, fully dependent on what our genes dictate in our behavior, these are the things we have to talk about. So extending Darwinian principles from bodies to behavior, it actually claims that adaptive forms of behavior are the only ones that survive, while maladaptive ones are weeded out by natural selection. So it's this idea that if natural selection is true, then the human species will be gradually weeding out um, harmful traits and that we that we have in behavior. Mm -hmm. But I would just say the test that just feels very, very quick to my mind is that like I don't actually experience that. I, I experience um, bad behavior. And so from my worldview, it would be, I would categorize it as evil. I see those things happening all the time. My question that I would pose then to a Darwin, if he were still alive, would be how would he explain why things like genocide and tremendous evil have not been naturally selected out by now? You would think according to the timeline and... Um, the, you know, the speed of natural selection, especially given all of our advances and technology advances and all of our progress, why has evil not been selected out by now? But moving on, any behavior though, the, the, the slippery slope with this is that any behavior in terms of evolutionary psychology can be justified as having survival value. Okay, but here's the implication. Evolution fails as a moral guide, and here's why, because it provides no standard for judging any existing practices. In this worldview, Darwinian evolution, you cannot claim an objective truth beyond, beyond this, that everything, all behavior is just for the purpose of usefulness. There's no meaning or purpose beyond that. So the logical flaw really in the theory here is that it undercuts it itself. If if all of our ideas and then our subsequent behaviors are just products of evolution, then so is the idea of evolutionary psychology itself. Like all other constructs of the human mind, it's not, it's not true, but only useful for survival. So therefore, it makes it really difficult to test. The idea that Darwinism is sort of the universal acid, if you will, that sort of the, dissolves away at um, traditional religious and ethical structures is sort of the height of wishful thinking. I'm quoting Nancy Piercy in that from her book, Total Truth, um, because she says it's the idea that you presume that that evolutionary by, or, um, psychology will erode other people's views, but not our own. So once the very possibility of objective truth has been undermined, which it is in this worldview, then Darwinian evolution itself cannot be understood as objectively true. If all ideas are just products of evolution and not really true in an objective sense, but only useful, which by the way is the entire premise mm -hmm. of Darwinian evolution, mm -hmm. then evolution itself is not true either. And then why should the rest of us pay attention? It's, so in this instance, that is an example of when you test the, the logical, you know, when you follow the thread, the logical conclusions, it's self-defeating. It's self-referentially absurd. Um, and so really that's the way that we are sort of, you know, encouraging the assessing of ideas. And if you discover that any philosophy, not just Darwinian evolution, um, or uh, in this instance, um, evolutionary psychology, once you discover that it's self-referentially absurd, and I don't mean that in a crass way, I just mean when it, when it, uh, when it contradicts itself, that typically is a sure sign that it is fatally flawed, meaning that the worldview doesn't then have the explanatory power in all realms, which is if it's true, it would have to. Yeah. Um, I have a quick um, underpinning or quote for that from Richard Rorty, who's an American philosopher and educator. 
Um, he says, on the basis of Darwinian evolution, there are no eternal truths, which is what mm -hmm. Jenna is saying. All ideas are products of time and chance. But this conclusion rests on evolution being eternally true in the sense he denies, in this sense, he denies that anything can be true. Yeah. Um, Rorty admits that the very concept of objective truth is actually grounded in the Christian conviction that the universe was created by a person or an eternal truth. Um, the idea of a truth beyond human subjectivity is the remnant of the idea that the world is a divine creation, the work of someone who himself spoke some language in which he described his own project. Oh, wow. that's quote. amazing, yeah. Um, but I think that I just thought that was a really great um, way to look at, like, you know, a reductionistic worldview leads to a lower view of humanity because mm -hmm. um, it sees the human mind as, right, just chemical purposeless, processes, yeah. as purposeless yeah. in, in some sense, yeah. but it's purposeful in that it's, only purpose is survival oh, no matter yeah. what, yeah, right? Distinction. Yeah. Um, it, but it reduces human reason to something less than reason, mm, which yeah. I think is really important. Because there's no such thing as free will. Right. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yet the only way any worldview can argue its own case is by using reason. Mm. So by discrediting reason, it undermines its own case. It's yeah. self-defeating. So right? good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And another way to look at this um, is that water cannot rise above its source, yeah. right? So if we see that, that we are the product of time and chance, that we are the product of just survival, whether or not we're using objective truth to survive, it doesn't matter. It just is what works. Yeah. Um, we can't rise above that. So if there's no objective truth um, in how we came to be, then our own mind um, can't produce truth. Yeah. It can't yeah. rise above its source. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So the, the reason, I mean, while maybe this kind of feels just like lofty and even maybe unimportant for like our daily living, right? The reason this does actually matter is because if we're people who are committed to this idea of wanting our own individual lives to correspond with reality, this matters to those people. And so the the tricky part about evolutionary psychology is that many proponents of it actually admit that it is a dark doctrine with repugnant implications. And the implications are why I do actually think it matters for our individual lives, even if we unexamine or don't examine um, the rest of this. So if so I guess just kind of follow the thread here. If if humans are nothing more than gene machines or robot, robots that are just programmed to behave in certain ways by natural selection, the result of our genetic code, then what becomes of moral freedom and human dignity, right? So if there's no free will, we are just programmed to do the next survival thing and what's useful, what becomes of moral freedom, free will. Ironically, when, when evolutionary psychologists reach that point, often we, they suddenly pivot and turn around and then contradict everything they've said. And I'm just, I'm just more referring to many of the books written by this because what will happen then is then they'll urge us humans to act against our genetic programming by embracing all of a sudden traditional moral ideas of love and altruism. So we know that actually if we just all acted in an animalistic, um, bestial, like primitive way, we hurt each other. That is, that's actually what's demonstrated. So then that's why all of a sudden the call for morality, traditional moral ideas of love and brotherly love, the self-sacrificial stuff. So it's just interesting because what that means to me, and I think what a lot of now philosophers are making the point of, is that if you hold to this as a worldview, you have to actually dip out of it when you start actually doing the living. It actually requires faith because you have to act against your genetic programming in order to exist in healthy relationships with people and in order to, um, to relate in healthy ways. So correcting the, even the idea of correcting moral biases that are built into us by natural selection, which by the way, natural selection is the, is frankly a perfect justification for things like racism and name any bias. And I'm not, I'm obviously not condoning that, but I'm saying that's the basis for it. If you're saying everything is just about survival of the fittest and 
the mentality attached to that, that is a really dangerous and slippery slope. And that's why then a lot of the people who, um, who, you know, adhere to evolutionary psychology, that's why they have to dip out of it because they realize that's flawed. We don't, the biases, we know that those are wrong. We know that things like racism are wrong. And so, um, you know, in order to practice the ideal of brotherly love, we really, we, you know, you have to escape from the whole premise of this. If we're really machines created by natural selection, how can we then correct the force that created us? And so it's really asking the question, if, if we understand that biases are wrong and that um, those sort of grave pathologies are wrong, it's like, well, how can we even claim that those are correctable? Because free will is not an option here. We're just acting out of our genetic selected code how can we have a basis to even shame then immoral things that we would that we would categorize as immoral but on what basis so i don't know if that really makes sense but i think that is the really that's the difficulty with the slippery slope that is evolution because like like all of us i think all of us really when we think about it if we're going to apply the test of our real life experience from our actual experience we know that we do make genuine choices when there's a fork in the road, we do have the power to choose one or the other. There's nothing in evolutionary psychology to account, though, for this power of choice. You really have to have a leap of faith in order to assert that. Um, and so in my mind, and I think this is what a lot of philosophers are discovering now, that if it does fail the practical test in that no one can actually live by it or within it. I have yeah. a few quotes by some modern-day philosophers that actually do adhere to this materialist deterministic worldview but when pressed on this issue here's what they say are you ready for this yeah so philosopher john searle who embraces materialism and that the human um action is determined says he says we say okay i believe in determinism but the conviction of freedom is built into our experiences we just can't give it up if we tried to we couldn't live with it okay so here he's saying freedom has no ground in his worldview. Maybe the box is too small. Another philosopher, um, Saul Smolansky, who is also a determinist, regards free agency as an illusion, um, also says that free will is a necessary fiction, um, morally necessary to undergird the social order, right? We can't have a justice system without this, right? Yeah. We can't um, hold anyone accountable for anything. He says, we cannot live adequately with a complete awareness of the absence of free will. Thus, we ought to hold on to those central but incoherent or contradictory beliefs in the free will case. Right? So he's being challenged by general revelation. His worldview gives no basis for any ought to because that implies that humans are capable of making moral choices. He then goes on to say, there are those in the know, i.e. scientists or philosophers, and then the rest of us the vast majority who must be misled as to our real nature, lest we become demoralized. Oh my yeah. gosh. And then here we go with Dawkins. So Richard Dawkins is arguably one of the most famous atheists, um, new atheists. He says, and he sees humans as survival machines, again, like robot vehicles, blindly programmed with no more freedom than, he says, a little red car. Um, he admits that he doesn't practice what he preaches. It would be impossible for justice to exist if we cannot punish someone for amoral choices because they fundamentally have no basis for personal responsibility. When asked if he saw the inconsistency um, his, in his view, he responded, I sort of do, yes, but it is an inconsistency that we sort of have to live with. Otherwise, life would be intolerable, <laughs> says Richard Dawkins. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And one last one is from Slingerland who's also a Darwinist, he says, it is alien and often repugnant from any sort of normal human perspective. And here he's, he's re, um, referring to how revulsive, repulsive it is um, to think of his daughter as merely a complex robot to carry his genes into the next generation. He says, there may well be individuals who lack this sense, right? That, that that's like not okay, that we see our, our children as robots, right? And who can quite easily and thoroughly conceive of themselves and other people as purely instrumental mechanistic term in purely instrumental mechanistic terms, but we label such people as psychopaths and quite rightly try to identify them and put them away somewhere to protect the rest of us. I thought that was a really um, strong <laughs> yeah yeah idea. Okay, yeah. so we're gonna have to pause here, mm-hmm. um, and we're gonna pick up in the next part of this where truth is today. 
Um, and I'm going to speak a little bit to the necessity of truth, the value and power of truth in the realm of counseling and healing and mental health. Yeah. Um, and then we'll speak to what's coming next. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks. Oh. Mm-hmm.